Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And the Archbishop Desmond Tutu encapsulated the complexity of amnesty in South Africa when he said, there is no future without forgiveness. Resentment is like drinking a poison and hoping it will kill your enemies. Forgiveness means abandoning your right to pay back the perpetrator in his own coin, but it is a loss that liberates the victim. And in that sentence, when he says it is a loss, but it liberates the victim, he does encapsulate the very essence of amnesty, the complexity, the challenges, the difficulties, and the pain. And there was no one who embodied that complexity the way Justice Campepe did. And in introducing her, I just want to touch on these two points in her life as a philosopher and as a jurist. When she was on the Amnesty Commission and she had perpetrators of horrific human rights abuses come before her, and when she asked them, how is it that you could commit these crimes, they replied to her, a black woman, it is because we did not believe that black people had souls. We did not think that black people were humans. So from that, you can understand the very complexity of the amnesty charge. The second important turning point in her history as a jurist that has enormous relevance to us here at Penn Law was a moment in history in 2016 when South Africa itself was roiled by student protests. When students were protesting and rebelling against a spike in tuition fees. And at that moment in history, the justice was invited to deliver a distinguished human rights lecture at Stellenbosch University. And at the law school, she addressed the current crisis in South Africa in ways that are so powerful, especially to us here at Penn Law, because we too are at that moment in history when we are facing a similar crisis. She said powerfully, we are currently witnessing a wave of protest by university students countrywide. Education is a primordial necessity. When seen in the context of our constitution, Education is the lifeblood of a democracy. Our constitution abhors an ethic of obedience and is resistant to a culture of docility. We must work vigorously for a lasting enterprise. To give effect to this, we must do as Jacques Derrida encouraged, to hear, read, interpret, try to understand. Only then do we do justice and accept the call to arms against entrenched dominance to democratically shape our own accepted values, paradigms, and institutions as a society. And earlier in the morning in my interview with her, I said that statement embodies three philosophical concepts. One is her philosophy that meaningful participation is part of the transformative process of South Africa's constitution. Secondly, her role on the constitutional court is really to celebrate and enhance social and economic rights. And South Africa's constitution is known, its hallmark is the way in which it has enshrined social and economic rights in the South African constitution. And when she says education is a primordial necessity, she's really giving voice to those economic and social rights. And finally, when she says our constitution abhors an ethic of obedience, she says disobedience is part of the constitution of South Africa. So we have with us a jurist and a philosopher who really embodies South Africa's past, the painful past of apartheid, a jurist who has dismantled that apartheid system and is now shaping the future of South Africa as the recently appointed first woman acting chief justice of South Africa. So we welcome you to Penn Law at a historic moment in our institution, in our nation, and in South Africa's own future. Thank you, Justice.
Thank you, Ajita, for that in introduction. Today, I have been honored with an invitation to travel across the oceans from South Africa to this prestigious institution, the University of Pennsylvania Law School, to discuss and share my insights as one of the 17 commissioners appointed by the late President Nelson Mandela to be a part of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission called the TRC. The mandate of the TRC was to investigate and record the nature, causes, and extent of gross violations of human rights committed under apartheid during the period of 1 March 1960 to the cutoff date, to identify the fate and whereabouts of the victims of human rights violation of this nature, granting amnesty to perpetrators who made full disclosure of all the relevant facts relating to acts associated with a political objective, and providing victims of apartheid atrocities with reparations and rehabilitation, along with the restoration of their human and civil dignity. In essence, the TRC was tasked with recognizing the atrocities of the victims of apartheid and clothing them with the dignity that they were once stripped of and systematically denied, while at the same time holding the perpetrators to account for their crimes. Much has been written about the TRC as the ideal model for restorative and, and, and transitional justice. The focus of the TRC on reconciliation and rehabilitation rather than retribution has been praised as an effective instrument for nation building and reconstituting a just society. <coughs> However, there has equally been much criticism advanced by many academics and commentators against the TRC. These criticisms and dissents are crucial and necessary to the continuing conversation in South Africa and the world concerning the impact and effect of the TRC on institutional racism, reconciliation, redistribution, both economic and land-based, substantive equality, and notions of forgiveness. The question persists, did the TRC and its preferred approaches atone for the atrocities committed during the apartheid? My lecture does not intend on focusing on the merits of these arguments or debates. My earnest desire is to contribute to the continuing discourse surrounding the TRC and its functions. My lecture will be divided into three parts. Part A will delve into and discuss the birth of the TRC process and its functions. Part B will look at the general attitudes surrounding the process in present-day South Africa. And in part C, I will attempt to discuss the value of the TRC in the future. I use the word attempt very deliberately because this issue is so complex and intricate that one cannot truly do justice to any analysis about its impact in the future. I will discuss the lessons to be learned from the TRC, and I will attempt to give a message to you young people who are gathered here today. In order to properly understand and appreciate the impact and the role of the TRC, one must have regard to its identity and genesis. It is common cause that the TRC was the result of the negotiated settlement between the white government and the predominantly liberation movements. However, European domination in South Africa can be traced back to the latter part of the 15th century. This perennial domination and oppression enjoyed Dutch and English colonialism from the 17th century to the beginning of the 20th century. It persisted 
through generations of institutionalized and legislated racism and culminated in racial segregation that spanned for decades. The negotiated settlement, as we know, was the apotheosis of racial tensions in South Africa, which the primary objective to counterpose the pending and boiling civil war. South Africa was feared to implode. This feared civil war threatened the promise of a nation that was yet to be born, and hence the importance of successful negotiations. Apartheid was dead, and those who wielded power could no longer imprison, silence, and cull the oppressed without impunity. Change was necessary. Change was inevitable. Change could be attained through bloodshed or a negotiated settlement. On 20 December 1991, the formal negotiations commenced at the Convention for a Democratic South Africa, which is called CODESA, with its first plenary meeting in the World Trade Center in Kempton Park. CODESA is scarcely free from criticism and was confronted with numerous difficulties both internally and externally. During this political transition, which South Africa was negotiating its way through, it was perspicuous that a constitution which set out a reasonable framework that all negotiating parties would pledge their fidelity to was of essence. After numerous failures and collapses of the constitutional ne negotiations, the interim constitution was adopted. The interim constitution was committed to a transition towards a more just, defensible, and democratic political order based on the protection of fundamental human rights. It was wisely appreciated by those involved in preceding negotiations that the task of building this new democratic order was a very arduous task indeed because of the previous history and the deep emotions and indefensible iniquities it had generated. And that this could not be achieved without a firm and generous commitment to reconciliation and national unity. It was realized that much of the unjust consequences of the past could not ever be fully reversed. It might be necessary in crucial areas to close the book of the past without forgetting the atrocities that had been committed in the past. Evidenced by this epilogue is the fact that the TRC was one of the envisaged bricks and mortar, which would form part of the historic bridge between a deep, deeply divided past to a South Africa founded on human rights and national unity. Its purpose needs to be understood in the context of a number of other instruments aimed at the pro promotion of democracy, like the Land Claims Court, the Constitutional Court, and the Human Rights and Gender and Youth Commissions, all institutional tools in the transformation of South, Africa, South African society. Staying true to the epilogue and the, in the interim constitution's up, up aspirations, Parliament enacted the Promotion of National Unity and Reconciliation Act, which led to the establishment of the TRC in 1995. A key object of the TRC was indeed to promote national unity and reconciliation in the period which was the subject of his focus, which was between 1 March this was the month in which the Sharpeville massacre took place, and the cutoff date of May 1994 was when Mr. Nelson Mandela was elected the first democratic president of South Africa. The Promotion of National Unity and Reconciliation Act made provisions for three committees within the TRC, which I now briefly tend to. First, the Committee on Human Rights Violation was primarily tasked with leading an investigation into human rights violation. Its primary mandate was to uncover as much as possible of the truth about past atrocities 
of violations of human rights, an often difficult task. The TRC was, however, founded on the belief that this task was necessary for the promotion of reconciliation and national unity. It facilitated the public acknowledgement of gross violations suffered by victims. In so doing, the committee sought to restore the dignity of those who had suffered. It gave victims a voice to unburden their suffering. This committee devoted much of its time and resources to acknowledging the painful experiences of victims. Second, the Committee on Amnesty, of which I was part, had the mandate of facilitating and granting amnesty to perpetrators who committed gross violations of human rights associated with political objectives. Although there was a set criteria for the granting of amnesty, a fundamental sine qua non for the granting of amnesty was that the applicant had to make full disclosure of all the relevant facts. No apology from the perpetrator was required. On a personal note, the crude and horrendous testimony I heard during my time in the TRC has haunted me for years. There were nights where I struggled to sleep as my mind kept on replaying the hearings. I can only imagine the trauma the actual victims went through. The third was the Committee on Reparation and Rehabilitation. It had to consider the plight of victims referred to it by the other two committees and gathered evidence relating to the identity fate and whereabouts of victims as well as the nature and the extent of harm suffered by them. Any person of the opinion that he or she suffered harm as a result of a gross violation of human rights could apply to this committee for reparation. Each claim was investigated and this committee was empowered to make recommendations on appropriate reparations for victims. In addition to these committees, there was the investigative unit, which was tasked with investigating any matter falling within the scope of the TRC's ambit. This included verifying evidence by victims and people applying for amnesty before testimony was heard, identifying and investigating dominant themes of human rights violations like the attacks on trains, buses and on liberation movements. I next deal with the TRC in, in comparison to other truth commissions or equ equivalent bodies. Numerous truth commissions have been held across the world. However, none of these commissions have been as ambitious as the South Africa's TRC. For instance, unlike other truth commission, the TRC was not established to prosecute and punish perpetrators, but it was tasked with identifying and recording the truth leading to human rights abuses. A unique feature of the TRC was that it was empowered to grant amnesty to individual perpetrators who duly applied and made full disclosure. To my knowledge, no other investigative body like a truth commission has been given this important quasi-judicial power with the investigative task of truth recovery. <coughs> this feature has the advantage that it elicited detailed account of gross violations of human rights from the perpetrators themselves. The commission was empowered to grant amnesty without the involvement of anyone including the President of the Republic of South Africa. Another significant feature laid in the TRC's power of subpoena, search, and seizure. This led to questioning of witnesses, including those who were implicated in violations but did not apply for amnesty. None of the Latin American Commission, for instance, had the power to compel witnesses to come forward with evidence. Another distinctive feature of the TRC was its openness 
to public participation. This enabled it to reach out on a daily basis to a large number of people, both inside and outside South Africa, with vivid images on their television and newspapers. For example, the public saw a security policeman demonstrating various torture techniques used on victims, and others saw weeping victims recounting their untold stories of suffering. This enabled the nation to, fo to focus on values central to a healthy democracy, which is transparency, public debate, and public participation. Other countries like Uganda had a few public hearings through its truth commissions, but these were drastically lower than those of the TRC. Similarly, the Latin American Truth Commission had testimonies in private, away from the public eye. This was not something we did. We publicized all the hearings and invited members from the public to actively participate in these hearings and work and the work we were doing. This level of transparency inspired confidence and increased public interest, both locally and internationally. Even the appointment of the 17 commissioners was public and transparent. This included the chairperson of the TRC, the Emeritus Archbishop Desmond Tutu himself. The president could not merely appoint anyone he so wished to appoint. He had to appoint persons in consultation with cabinet and the process had to be transparent to the public. He further could not remove a commissioner arbitrarily as the grounds of removal from the TRC were stringent and could not remove any commissioner on any other grounds except those listed in the TRC Act. The first hearing of the TRC was held on 15 April 1996 when it sat in East London. Approximately five years were spent by the TRC in investigating, examining, and recording the, the atrocities committed in the 34-year period. The hearings and the evidence unearthed by the TRC told a grim and harrowing story of how people were systematically abducted, tortured, and killed. For instance, in one of the amnesty hearings, we were told of the ANC activist who was tied up to a tree with his feet hanging upside down from the tree. A fire was lit underneath his head in order to burn his hair and scalp, whilst the police near, sat nearby enjoying a barbecue beers and laughing as he was screaming in pain. The hearings evinced a blatant disregard of fundamental human rights to those considered non-Europeans. Some of the most atrocious inhumane murders were documented. The testimonies of those who lost loved ones at the hands of apartheid left one ashamed of being a South African. The atrocities that were unraveled left no doubt in anyone's mind that apartheid was indeed a crime against humanity. The TRC officially came to an end in July 1998, although its mandate was extended to 2002 to enable the Amnesty Committee to complete its work. Although there was pain caused by the TRC process, in the end, it gave victims of apartheid names and dignity. It gave them a voice which had been systematically silenced for decades. It brought the perpetrators to the front, held them publicly accountable for their evil deeds, and enabled those affected by their violations to have closure. In the end, the TRC recorded the testimonies of approximately 21,000 victims. 2,000 of these testimonies took place in public hearings. Approximately 7,102 amnesty applications were received, but only 849 applications were granted amnesty.
The reason why many applications for amnesty were refused is because amnesty was not freely given. The applicant had to satisfy the stringent requirements set out in Section 20 of the Act, which, again, as I have said, included full disclosure. In the case of reparations, why it is tried that millions of South Africans suffered the brand of apartheid were the victims of many human rights abuses, less than 22,000 people qualified for reparations under the TRC's reparations. This was one of the unintended results of the narrow construction of victims of gross human rights violations. This meant that for a considerable number of South Africans, there has unfortunately and regrettably been little or no formal recognition of the suffering they endured outside of the government's lip service. Having set out the background of the TRC, I interpose at this juncture to make a few salient points. Reflecting on the time of the TRC, it has become evident to me that the truth is both powerful and dangerous. This is because historical truth cannot be bottled and administered as contemporary medicine of the wounds of the past. Truth commissions generally face the challenge of having to employ the truth as a means of restoring justice and promoting reconciliation and peace, while at the same time, the truth-telling process has the intended danger of recounting the divisive and emotive past traumas and atrocities. How does a truth commission balance the subjective and objective form of truth without trivializing the truth of others while elevating and prioritizing the truth of some? How do you achieve this without diminishing the legitimacy of the TRC and compromising the mandate of national unity and reconciliation. We were alive to this danger as the TRC. Albeit our report was an objective and authoritative account of the past atrocities, we were con cognizant that it was possible and indeed probable that there were other accounts of atrocities as our narrative consisted of personal testimonies of those who elected to come forward and share their stories of suffering. This created the idea of multiple truths. These multiple truths are told by different victims in their own words, some told with trembling and pain-stricken voices. However, this was acceptable because at the end of the day, the TRC aimed to put a human face on all those who suffered and continue to suffer. It was meant to facilitate the process of reconciliation and peace, establish the, th the truth through a dialogue between people who held different perspectives, that is, perpetrators and victims of cross violations of human rights. With that being said, it must be remembered that when the TRC was established, a choice had to be made between two models of justice, which had been adopted by other jurisdictions when confronted with historical human rights violations and abuses in their transitional post-conflict periods. These are the justice model, the reconciliation model. The former is primarily concerned with addressing questions of prosecutions and punishment, predominantly characterized by retributive justice and criminal accountability. The latter is principally concerned with restorative justice, with its associated elements like truth-telling and seeking re reconciliation. This model is also known as the truth model. As history has shown us, both these models of justice have their own inherent flaws. Should a country on the one hand adopt a justice model 
then the citizens of that country must bear the consequences of living with hatred and vengeance and perpetually recreating victims of injustices. While on the other hand, the adoption of reconciliation model will result in the oppressor and oppressed, the abuser and abused to live together and peacefully coexist while the government tries to press the refresh button. In essence, in this model, truth takes precedence over punishment and retribution. In order to achieve this truth-telling, an amnesty carrot had to be dangled before the perpetrators who committed the impugned atrocities. We chose this model, the reconciliation model. In any event, the interim constitution <coughs> demanded reconciliation and national unity over retribution and retaliation. This is in accordance with the principle of Ubuntu, an African principle which guided and directed the manner in which post-apartheid South Africa would be funded. The late Chief Justice Pius Langer, in his concurring judgment in S versus Makwanyane, a landmark case that declared the death penalty unconstitutional and unlawful, defined Ubuntu as emphasizing communality and interdependence where the life of one is considered as valuable as one's own. Although the judgment does not make express mention of the elements of restorative justice, it did, however, contrast the principles of dignity and Ubuntu to the concept of retributive justice, which points to an indirect recognition of restorative justice. The case of Azapo versus the President of the Republic of South Africa explicitly deals with the TRC and its preferred model of justice. In this case, Azapo, which was one of the liberation movements at that time, and the families of a number of prominent victims of apartheid approached the Constitutional Court and challenged the constitutionality of the TRC's amnesty provisions. This was because, as a result of the grant of amnesty, the perpetrator cannot be criminally or civilly liable in respect of that act. Equally, the state or any other body, organization, or person that would ordinarily have been vicariously liable for such act cannot be liable in law. The Constitutional Court, in a judgment penned by the late Mohammed D.P., found that the sections were not unconstitutional and were indeed envisaged and demanded by the epilogue of the interim constitution. In making this finding, the Constitutional Court supported the reconciliation model kind of justice to the predominantly Western retributive or punitive criminal trial-based version. <coughs> to this end, Mohammed rightly articulated that if the Constitution kept alive the prospect of continuous retaliation and revenge, the agreement of those threatened by its impl implementation might never have been forthcoming. And if it had, the breach itself would have remained wobbly and insecure threatened by fear from some and danger from others. It was for this reason that those who negotiated the Constitution made a deliberate choice, preferring understanding over vengeance, reparation over retaliation, Ubuntu over vengeance. Undoubtedly, this case affirmed the importance of restorative justice in the TRC process. How is the TRC viewed today? Did the TRC reconcile a once deeply divided society? Did it completely heal the wounds of the past? The answer is simply no. 
The TRC ne neither fully reconciled a deeply divided society, nor completely healed the wounds of the past. So is the natural denouement that the TRC was a failure. Again, the answer is no. In my view, the TRC's mandate was never to suddenly reconcile and immediately healed, but it was an event that formed part of a larger project. It was part of a larger conversation that the new South Africa was meant to engage in. The TRC was tasked, in essence, with facilitating the process of reconciliation and healing through truth-telling, restorative justice, and amnesty. However, it was never envisaged to the ends in itself. No one can possibly argue that the TRC was meant to heal and resolve the issues created by over 300 years of colonization and over 50 years of apartheid. A look at South Africa today shows that there is much healing and reconciliation to be done. Admittedly, Millions of South Africans, primarily black South Africans, are still dispossessed of land, experience abject poverty, and do not enjoy quality basic health care, and are thus subjected to avoidable diseases. For many, the promise of a bright future has been denuded and is at best illusionary. Social ills like racism, dispossession, violence and corruption unfortunately still remain somehow ingrained in South Africa. Even with the constitution that, that is held throughout the world, millions of South Africans feel marginalized and excluded. To them, the TRC process and the negotiated settlement meant nothing except a political compromise by those in power. However, this should not overshadow and trivialize the requisite work of the TRC. To my mind, without the establishment and interventions of the TRC, South Africa would be poorer and there would plausibly be greater animosity, racial tension, and even a bloodbath. The TRC was a process that was not perfect. However, with that being said, the TRC was not a lost cause, and it undoubtedly achieved tremendous objectives. I caution that in our quest of interrogating the TRC, we should be slow to ignore and downplay its contribution in providing a narrative of what transpired during apartheid, and ultimately, playing a crucial role in ensuring a relatively peaceful transition. I now turn to the criticisms advanced against the TRC. So we have justice, several uh, interlocutors who are prepared to discuss with you, you know, the future of South Africa, but also your own history, your own history and your journey uh, to being one of South Africa's leading jurists. So we have Fatimata, Kunal, Eduarda, Justin, Asim, and Brendan, and several of them have, you know, worked on these areas of TRC and transitional justice, and they're eager to engage with you. Good afternoon. Thank you again for joining us, Justice. It's an honor to be amongst your presence. Um, given the topic for today is 25 years after apartheid, looking to the past and looking to the future, I thought it would be great if you can start off by telling us what does 25 years after apartheid look like for South Af Black South Africans, and what it, what does it look like for all South Africans as well? Yes. South Africa is still ingrained in divisions of the past, notwithstanding the work that the TRC has started. 
it is still not a united society. The TRC was not meant in any case to immediately unite the divided South Africans. It started the journey towards reconciliation. But today, South Africa is still rampant with divisions of the past, with dispossessions, with unemployment at an acceptable rate, which makes people very frustrated that the process of reconciliation did not bring much to them. And therefore, they feel quite let down by the process of reconciliation. Hi, sisters. Uh, it's an honor to be here with you. Um, so you know you spoke about how the South African Constitution is held up around the world as a model of uh, actually granting so many rights that aren't present on the Constitution. So Fatu and I were both in the Gambia uh, a few months ago, and we were speaking with um, you know, civil society members there and the Constitutional Review Commission. And uh, something that came up was that in South Africa's constitution, you know, there are like explicit protections for sexual orientation, for instance. Come again? For sexual orientation in the South African constitution. Yes. My question for you is, both as a jurist and as a philosopher, uh, can, I want to understand what your perspective is when a legal document grants certain rights that societal attitudes might not approve of, or there might be repercussions from society at large. And what's kind of the fine line in granting those fundamental rights to minorities um, that larger society might not approve? Yes. Well, I think uh, your question indirectly is speaking to the issue of amnesty. Am I correct? Yes. Um, I think one has to understand the fact that South Africa was in a very special situation. The country was faced with a government that had military power. And there had to be a give and take in terms of trying to reach a process of a negotiated settlement. So the liberation movement had to somehow agree that the process of amnesty would have to be implemented. And in that way, the rights, of course, of the victims in, in having to be able to civilly claim for the injuries that had been caused by the perpetrators of uh, perpetrators of gross violations of human rights had to be given in. And it was appreciated by those who negotiated the settlement that if that was not achieved, there would be a bloodbath. So there had to be a compromise. But having said that, amnesty is a very crucial and powerful tool in making sure that if you are in a transitional uh, situation, you need to unearth the atrocities of the past and in order to enable the country to move forward. And amnesty is a way of ensuring that the perpetrators themselves are able to come forward and give their own perspectives of their contribution in the gross violations of human rights. In that way, the country is able to move forward. Granted, the victims of gross violations of human rights in this case felt extremely let down by the fact that the amnesty was granted without a need for forgiveness or apology on the part of the perpetrators. But that is the situation that in South Africa we're prepared to live in in order to move forward. So, Eduarda was in class last night when you spoke very briefly about your own journey uh, and your growth as a jurist, starting in a tribal law school, the only law school that you as a black African could enter. And I had promised Eduarda and some of her classmates who are here that we would continue sharing your story with them. So Radha, you I wanted to ask a question, but I also want the justice to to continue the conversation that you started with Eduarda and her classmates. Yes, um, thank you, Justice, for being here. Um, it was an absolute privilege to hear you speak last night and hear some of your 
personal stories um, from being inspired to go to Harvard Law and that professor that really motivated you to come back to South Africa and do this work, as well as your journey of resilience going and getting denied from law firms and starting your own legal practice. So I'm hoping you could just maybe continue that story of how you kept that resilience and as a black woman in South Africa, how you continue to influence change and what inspired you to do so. My story is a story of having to be supported, I'm glad to say, by men. When I was at the law school in my tribal university, I was approached by the dean of my faculty and advised of the opportunities that were available to be able to study in the US universities. And he mentioned that there was one university that he would like me to apply to, and that is Harvard, being a prestigious university. I must say, at the level at which I, I was, being a final year student in, in law, I did not know what Harvard Law School was. That was the effect that the apartheid regime had ingrained in us. So when the opportunity came, I applied to Harvard Law School. I had to take examinations for admission and was told that I had been successful and I had been accepted. Having to go there was a very difficult situation for me. I had never been 200 kilometers away from my own country in Soweto. So you can imagine how terrified I was of having to go to a foreign country and having to know that I was going to see white people. To me, white people were a species which had to be thought of in terms of vengeance, in terms of anger, in terms of oppression. And when I came to Harvard, I found that I was in the midst of people who were as humane as myself. I made friends with white students and discovered that there was nothing really super magic about being white. Whereas where I come from, the prospect of being white meant that you had to be feared. I studied and completed my degree. I'm not sure whether yesterday I told you that I received a letter of appreciation. I did. I would love for you to share with everybody. Okay. When, when I was at Harvard after completing my degree, I came from a tribal university. This is a university that is supposed to be an inferior university to the other well-regarded white universities. So when I got there, I was obviously frightened about the level of my own competency as against people who came from other universities. I was wonderfully surprised that I obtained my LLM with an A+. Having come from a tribal university, that shows how determination is and how it is important not to allow circumstances to define you. After obtaining my degree, I got a letter of appreciation from the dean, from, from the professor of my graduate uh, school. In that letter, he acknowledged my dissertation and indicated that he had actually enjoyed reading my LLM paper and said, which was very surprising to me, that I was going to be a great lawyer in my country and would be able to share the insights and knowledge which I had gained at Harvard Law School. Now, it was really like a joke to me because I knew I was going back to a country which was not my country. I was going back to a country which was full of oppression. And what 
insights and what knowledge would I be able to share in a situation of that nature. But I have framed that letter and it always gives me courage. It always encourages me to be able to know that I can be anything in life. That kind of appreciation has led me to be able to open my law practice at the time when, when I did that, I had double jeopardy. I was a woman. You all know what women are going through. Even today, as we speak, I think as you are all seated here, you know the difficult paths that women have to cross in terms of leadership positions. I was a woman. I was black. And what opportunities really did I expect to be open for me in order to start my law practice? But the fact that I had obtained a degree from Harvard spurred me on. And that letter of appreciation bowed me. And after starting my legal practice, I went on to be appointed one of the truth commissioners in South Africa. After being appointed a truth commission, I went on to become appointed as the national deputy director, which is like your attorney general, the deputy attorney general in South Africa. However, my stay there was short-lived because I was persuaded to join the judiciary. I was then appointed a judge of the high court. When I was appointed the judge of the high court, I still had I still had an interest in pursuing what was my great love, which was an area of specialization in labor law. And I wanted to see myself sitting in the labor appeal court. Again, booed by a male person, which is quite surprising. That's the surprise of my life. I was able to be appointed to the Labor Appeal Court. And thereafter, I was appointed the Justice of the Constitutional Court. So to answer your question, in short, I think the fact that I was able to get a degree from Harvard Law School, coming from an inferior background of education truly enabled me to have a belief in myself. Oh, Justice, thank you for being here. I'm hearing you speak. It's truly inspiring. I wanted to ask a question that kind of ties the past, the present, and the future of South Africa. Um, the legacy of a, a democratic post-apartheid South Africa has been celebrated uh, and used as a symbol for press people all around the globe. But now that legacy is under threat uh, of being replaced by one of xenophobia and violence, both physical and political. Um, I'm curious to know how you envision the progressive South African constitution will be used to protect the progressive vision of the country. Yes, thank you very much, Justine. I think uh, one has to understand that in South Africa there is no xenophobia. Xenophobia has been coined by the media and those who want to cast aspersions on South Africa. The problem in South Africa is one which is caused by the issues of the stomach. We have more people coming in from outside South Africa who are taking the jobs of those who are otherwise unable to accept salary pays which are below the belt. <clears throat> Therefore, the issue of the stomach enables those who are unemployed to act against those who are seen to be coming from outside. If there was real xenophobia, we should be saying, why is there no xenophobia when it comes to people who are in middle management in corporate companies because we have many of those people coming from other countries. So the constitution 
is guaranteeing the rights of every citizen. The safety of every citizen is guaranteed by the Constitution. Uh, thank you for coming. If I can somewhat uh, follow up on that. Uh, you mentioned the culture of disobedience and how that gets woven in um, not only perhaps culture, but also the very nature of governance. And to that end, as those who were perhaps the initial in the 90s and then thereafter, those engaged in disobedience become the people in charge of the systems and in charge of enforcing the systems, how does one ensure perhaps through the legal system uh, and through the Constitution, as, as other interlocutors have mentioned, that those who are now in charge do not similarly become symbols or at least agents of that which they sought to disobey in the first place. Okay. Well, I think uh, in that case, we are living through very interesting times. Uh, the South African Constitution is there to guarantee the safety of every person and to ensure that citizens are upright and are able to live up to their expectations. Therefore, to be able to not to regress from where we are as a nation, the Constitution is there to protect the rights of everyone. Thank you so much for being here today, Justice. Um, I feel very privileged because I actually spent last summer in Johannesburg, and one of the most memorable experiences I had was going and seeing the Constitutional Court and learning about some of the symbolism, the rich symbolism in the design and location of that court. So um, to now be sitting here in front of the person who will soon occupy the central seat in that court is quite amazing, and congratulations on that inspiring accomplishment. Um, I was also on the Gambia trip that Kunal mentioned a few minutes ago. And as you likely know, they're going through their own truth and reconciliation process after the fall of the Jame regime in 2016. And one of the most frequent, uh, frequent concerns that we heard during our interviews with various stakeholders there uh, involved uh, how, how, you, how in the, this truth and reconciliation process you make sure that the narrative is a holistic one that includes everyone. Uh, affected and victimized by the actions of the regime. And there was uh, particular concern that the voices of women, which have been historically silenced in the Gambia, would continue to be silenced and they would, they would feel uh, difficulty uh, sharing their stories, despite being one of the most uh, frequently persecuted groups in the regime. So I'm wondering how in your time as commissioner did you create a safe space where people felt they are uh, open and able to share their, their very personal stories. Thank you. Um, Brendan, we as a commission took it upon ourselves to go out to the public and speak to each and every community and invite them to come forward to tell their stories as victims of gross violations of human rights. I think I'm not sure what is happening in the Gambia. The truth commissioners who have been appointed should not sit on their laurels. They should go out into various communities, speak to all the communities, in particular women who are always at a disadvantaged position because they are always in the background. They are not visible. Speak to them and encourage them to come forward. In South Africa, we had a group called Kulumani Group, for instance, which had been organized by victims of the atrocities uh, as, a, as a, a way of uh, making sure that the, their atrocities and their voices are not silenced. I'm not sure whether in the Gambia you have a situation of that nature where you have an organization of people who have been subjected to these atrocities who will be able to make sure that people come out and speak out about their violations. 
But, but what is important is that the truth commissioners should really go out there and speak to communities who are affected in order to invite them to come up 